Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of April 4th, 2018. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host. And I'm joined, as usual, by my co-podcasters. First up in studio, Kyle Wagner, 538 sports writer. Hey, how you doing, Kyle? Doing okay. Yeah. And uh, on the line from Chicago, fellow 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, y'all? Uh, not much. You know, somehow we uh, avoided snow on a Wednesday in New York this week. Our, our weekly snow was on Monday, so it didn't interrupt the podcast uh, for once. And so that's good. And that means that uh, we can devote some time to talking about basketball. Uh, specifically, we're going to dive into the Eastern Conference in particular this week. We'll talk about the number one seed Toronto Raptors, what's driven their success this season, and will it carry over to the playoffs? We've also got a significant digit on the big superstar leap that Indiana's Victor Oladipo has made this season. But first, let's talk about Joel Embiid's injury for Philadelphia and some other historical notable facts about the Sixers' playoff push this year. On March 25th, the Sixers officially clinched a spot in the playoffs. And depending on how seeding shakes out, they might even have home court advantage for a first-round series. It's kind of crazy for a Philly team that was deep in tank mode a few seasons ago. This is Philly's first trip to the playoffs since 2012. In between, the team lost a whopping 301 games. But here they are. Uh, Of course, the Sixers were dealt a blow last week, though, when Joel Embiid, their all-star center, fractured his left orbital bone, endangering his availability for at least the beginning of the playoffs. So, guys, uh, I wanted to talk about how much Embiid particularly has been responsible for Philly's breakout season this year and and how much would this team miss him if he can't come back 100% at least uh, for the start of the playoffs. I mean, at, at this point, he he still is, I would say, their best player, and he's he's a massive part of what they do. At the beginning of the season, they were pretty much still the old Sixers uh, without him on the floor. I mean, Ben Simmons obviously was – was still playing well by himself, but he was mostly an offensive threat uh, at that point. You know, was still kind of coming into his own defensively better than we expected. Lately, it's been a little bit more balanced. They're still very good without him beat on the court. I think part of that, though, has to do with the the idea that they've been playing relatively weak competition the last few games, the last few weeks with him beat out. Uh, and so I think that's been balanced out a little bit more. But they're scary regardless, but I think to really – Obviously, to hit their full potential, they need him there because of the rim protection he provides, because of the the kind of high post, low post option that you get from Simmons and Embiid playing together as opposed to just one or the other. It's also just the defense. Um, he's one of the best defensive centers in the league. He's top five in you know RPM. Like any way you put it, he's he just changes the defense when he's on the court in a way that they really don't have anyone else um, to do that for them. Um, but but yeah, it's it's also not just you know the high post low post stuff. It's he changes the way that the pick and roll works. The pick and roll loses I think six or seven points overall um, effectiveness when he's off the floor because they don't have anyone uh, comparable to pair with the ball handlers uh, who can you know pressure the rim quite the way that he can. So um, it, it's it's a bunch of obvious differences. Like yes, the defense is worse without Joel. Like yes, um, other players offensively uh, get worse just because of the way he works with them. But uh, he's developed enough that like it's. It, it before this season it felt like we're just put him in the same kind of 
affects everything on the court uh, superstar kind of category. But yeah, that's obviously what he is now. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the most improved team in the league this season, and they went from 30th dead last in offensive efficiency to 14th with Embiid suddenly leading the team in usage rate by far. Uh, so he had a huge impact on that end of the court. And then they also moved up from 17th in defensive efficiency to 4th, so one of the true elite defensive teams. And like you said, Kyle, he's uh, one of the anchors of uh, the defense. Uh, he's fifth among centers in defensive real plus minus. So I guess maybe the upshot is down the stretch we'll get to see how Simmons can kind of carry the team by himself in Embiid's absence, which I think is kind of important for a player who is sort of coming into his own still, even as good as he is. It's kind of easy to forget that he still has a lot of improvement that he needs to do, and maybe this will be a learning experience for him. But I think maybe the more interesting topic is to ponder Philly's playoff potential, assuming Embiid is 100% healthy in the playoffs, because this team is one of the most inexperienced playoff teams ever. Uh, we, we looked at uh, an average of the value metrics at Basketball Reference, and uh, the four best players on the Sixers this year are Simmons, Embiid, Robert Covington, and Dario Saric, none of whom have played a playoff game in their entire careers. Uh, and we looked, going back to the merger in 1976, how many teams that made the playoffs could you say that about? Only 10 teams, including the Sixers, have ever made the playoffs with their top four players having no playoff experience and only two of those teams have made it past uh, the first round of the playoffs so this uh, even if Embiid comes back this is going to be one of the things that sort of is up for debate about this team is the truth to the adage that playoff experience matters a whole lot once you get to the NBA playoffs yeah I'm, I'm still on the fence in terms of whether this hurts them or helps them um, I, I really do feel like first of all they, they obviously are not your standard rookie team as far as a team that has this little experience because the the talent that they have with these young guys is so unusually good uh and obviously we've kind of talked and written about that neil but I, I i keep thinking to myself that maybe this doesn't hurt them as much as we're thinking because basically they know how good they are i mean they're still in the conversation for 50 wins uh in a year where they haven't been totally totally healthy in a year where they've kind of made some modifications to the roster um, at the All-Star break and stuff like that. And I tend to think that on some level you almost don't have time to get nervous when you are this inexperienced, that you this idea that kind of like the same way that you try to sometimes train babies and children to swim at a young age before they really know exactly what you're doing when you throw them in the pool. I don't know. It's more of a feel on this, but I, I tend to think that they – could do very well, at least in a first-round series, depending on who they draw. And I think part of the reason that Philly is so interesting is because I assume that none of these teams really would want to play a team with those sorts of front-line stars that they have, despite how young they are. I, I highly doubt Cleveland wants a matchup with them. And I tend to think that you know several other teams that have way more experience than them would really want to play them either. Yeah, earlier in the season, um, you referenced this. We we compared Simmons and Embiid to Penny Hardaway and Shaq on the mid you know early to mid nineties Magic, and that's a pretty valid comparison, especially since one of those ten teams that made the playoffs with their top four having no playoff experience was the nineteen ninety three ninety four Magic, uh, and of course that team ended up being swept in the first round by Reggie Miller and the Pacers. But I think it did kind of lay the groundwork for a run to the NBA Finals the very next season. So if we're seeing kind of history repeat with this team, it is kind of interesting to draw that parallel. 
I mean, the thing about that team is that the following season they added Horace Grant, who played a very big role for them that season, but obviously for the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls before that. So this this was a team that, like, yeah, they got their experience um, in that previous season. They, you know, got they got seasoned. They learned how to win, whatever you want. They also brought in, like, a veteran who'd been to the finals and, like, had you know knew how to win. So it wasn't just a pure, oh, we're going to scale up, like, our experience from one season to the next. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that's a great point because there are two ways to build experience right you can either go to the playoffs and kind of build it by doing but you can also just go out and get guys that have been there before and you know in a sense they do have one guy in JJ Redick who has fits that description but he's pretty much the only guy on that team that has any kind of meaningful playoff experience in at least in their starting lineup uh, and so it'll be kind of curious to see if they uh, no matter what happens this season do they go out and kind of augment things with a veteran or two over the offseason to try to kind of make a truer push in in the future by the way j- just like we're gonna get back to whatever in a second but as you're going through researching the 94 95 magic whatever <laughs> the number one result before basketball reference before penny before Shaq, whatever is 1994 95 orlando magic warm-up jacket oh and yes yes oh absolutely <laughs> made by starter has to be made by starter <laughs> right? of course yes those were so fresh. So one thing I'll add to, to both of your points with regards to, you know, the idea that do you kind of just roll with the guys you have and, and let them get more seasoning on their own, or do you go out and sign that talent? I mean, the Sixers can obviously do a little bit of both. That's why their position is kind of so envied right now is this idea. They obviously have a ton of top-line talent with Simmons and Embiid, you know, not to even mention Covington. Uh, Markel Fultz is back in the lineup now and actually has started to play some minutes with uh, with Simmons. But also that they've got tons of cap space still because of all the tanking that they've done because they basically made it a point to not put anyone expensive on the books. Embiid obviously has the extension. J.J. Redick, I think, was just the one-year deal. So he'll come off the books if they want him to this season. But, they, you know, they don't owe – people money for quite a while and so they're they're going to be in a position to go out and buy the talent that they need um you know i think a lot of people are questioning and wondering you know can they convince somebody like lebron or someone of that caliber given the strides that they've made this season alone yeah there was that billboard uh kind of imploring lebron to to come to philly so uh you know interesting possibilities for this team uh, as we look forward do we have uh, do we have like thirty seconds to to talk a bit, little bit, Markel? <laughs> yeah, please, please do, because he is going to be an, as important as anyone I think uh, in the future of this franchise. Going, you know, looking ahead. So, I mean, I've watched a little bit of him. Uh, watched a lot of like these first few games, whatever, and like he's still only played a few. Uh, the shot has started to go in a little more. It's overall the the numbers still aren't great, but when it's off, it's still really, really off. But for me, the thing is like the handle, like the handle, like looked so much. And obviously, there's so much rust that's involved in you know missing all that time. But I want to say at Washington, the, the handle was just much tighter, and like that's the thing more than the shot. Like the shot is it goes in from time to like it's fine. It'll, he'll be fine with that, I think. Uh, but it looks out of place. The handle, like he, it's it's slow, it's high, it's it's just so it's different than like what we were seeing when he was in college. Chris, you know the thing I noticed with him. I, I mean, I've I've noticed after Kyle mentioned that to us in Slack, I, I started looking at it. It is interesting that uh, he does look a little bit loose with the ball at times. But I mean, I think the thing I've noticed, especially from the first game now, is uh, the confidence. I mean, he yammed on somebody the other day in transition, uh, and even just you know the idea that he's missed this much time and not just that he missed the time, but that he missed the time with all of us scrutinizing the jump shot and even the free throw 
shots that he was taking. Um, I mean, he's taken shots like a, pretty much one a minute, at least for the first week or two, um, which is, is like amazing given – and I, th- that will obviously change if he continues to play with Simmons, if he's playing with Embiid, you know. Uh, but I kind of some, in some ways I kind of like the idea of him coming off the bench for them um, and not playing with Simmons early on because – He's kind of just given the reins to the second unit, and you allow him to build that confidence back before the playoffs start to be the guy. Um, and obviously, that you're hoping at some point that not might not be the case that he can kind of play with your other two stars and the rest of your your frontline guys. But um, it's I'm I'm really happy he came back. Uh, you know, for a while it kind of seemed as if they were just going to wait until next season. But to so many people, it looked like a mental thing for him more so than a physical thing. So it's really great to see him back, regardless. Okay, so we're going to keep an eye on the Sixers as they go into the playoffs. And obviously, uh, one of the big things is Embiid's injury, but just the rest of the team. I think they're really a fascinating team and a very exciting team to watch as we go into the playoffs. So let's move on to the Toronto Raptors. But first, let's hear a word from this week's sponsor. You can tell a guy who's got style. He always looks great and seems confident like he's ready for anything. Well, that takes a certain skill set that not all of us were born with. But now there's an easy way to look better. Let me tell you about Stitch Fix Men. Stitch Fix is the new way to shop for clothes, and it's unbelievably simple. Just go to stitchfix.com and answer some questions about your sizes, what styles you like, how much you want to spend. Stitch Fix has clothes for every guy and his style. It's not just one type of look. Your personal stylist then uses your preferences and the other information you entered to select brand new clothes just for you. The items are delivered right to your home, you try them on, and you only pay for what you keep. Just send anything you don't want right back to Stitch Fix, and shipping is free both ways. Get your fix on demand or sign up to receive scheduled shipments. Guys of all shapes, sizes, and budgets agree that defining your new style starts with Stitch Fix. Try them out today. You've got nothing to lose. And get started now at stitchfix.com slash the lab. That's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B. And you also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash the lab to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash the lab. So at long last, we are talking about the Toronto Raptors. They've been one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference for a while, notching at least 48 wins for five straight years. But this year might be the very best of the bunch. They're on pace for 59 wins and, you know, in very strong position, if not having locked up the number one seed in the East basketball reference gives them an 88% chance of getting that top seed. And yet... We have to talk about the Raptors' playoff record. They have not made the finals during this golden run for the franchise. The closest they came was the Eastern Conference Finals uh, against the Cavs in 2016, where they briefly tied the series, but then uh, were kind of outmatched down the stretch. Toronto is hoping that this year is different, and certainly there are a few reasons to think that these aren't the same old Raptors. So I'm going to start there, guys. What has caused Toronto to make such a leap this year? They've been playing very differently, right? So, I mean, I think we, we've talked about this a little bit and, and referenced it in stories and stuff. They're, it, it seems like they basically kind of looked at the last few seasons and the, the idea that they might stagnate and that Dwayne Casey and, and Masai Ujiri, I think, um, deserves credit for some of this as well, even though a lot of the roster is the same. They basically kind of went back to the drawing board and said, we're not good enough as constructed to just kind of keep, you know, backing up and then ramming into the wall and hoping that we'll break through. Um, you know, maybe try to go through the door this time and try something different. And so, They've they've reshuffled some things as far as really where their shot selection is coming from. Um, DeRozan has gotten a lot of attention for you know stepping back and taking more three threes instead of just the mid range jumpers, which he still takes plenty of and is still near the top of the league in doing that. But 
you know, they, they've moved the ball more this season. They seem to trust the other teammates more between Lowry and DeRozan. Um, their bench has been a huge part of what they do. And I, that's kind of the one thing I'm looking forward to seeing, whether it provides enough of a change and enough of a difference, is that you, you normally don't win the postseason through your depth because teams shorten their rotation and play their starters longer minutes. But Toronto's bench has been so good to where you would raise the question of whether they can do it in an unconventional way. They kind of remind me of the the Bulls from the Derrick Rose era, uh, kind of the bench mob that they had. And so I wonder whether that presents enough of a challenge for other teams and if they're just going to stick with that. But really, when I look at what's different, they've changed a number of things, shot selection, bench, and I just wonder if they continue to rely on those things when the going gets tough because they always lose game one of every series there, and I think they've lost like their last eight game ones or something like that. Yeah, you mentioned the bench. They went from plus 5.9 points per 100 possessions with no starters in the game a year ago, which was pretty good, one of the best in the league but not the best, to now plus 8.9 per 100 possessions uh, with their with no starters in the game. And this unit of we, – we've done a video on this uh, a few weeks ago even of – uh, Siakam, Van Vliet, Pirtle, Wright, and Miles has been the sixth most efficient five-man unit in the entire NBA. So that's including starting lineups, backups, you know, you name it. Uh, that particular unit has been kind of key to that. And it's really helped the team improve by about two points per game over last year's uh, top unit for the bench for the Raptors uh, on a team that has improved overall by three and a half points per game. So some of it, the starters have improved also. They've gone from plus 4.3 per 100 possessions to plus 6.4. But the bench has made up more than half of their improvement this year on this sort of next level Raptors team that we're talking about. So for me, the thing is, uh, we've we've seen a team like this before that had been you know peren- perennially a very good team and just made the leap, which is obviously the 2014-15 Hawks, who won 60 games, went to the Eastern Conference Finals, got mollywopped by LeBron, and basically just LeBron. Uh, because like Lovewood had already been out, uh, he'd gotten you know yanked around by Kelly Olynyk. I think Kyrie Irving only played a few games in that series too, and they they got swept. And LeBron didn't even play that well in that series either. It was the thing like they got beat by J.R. Smith basically and Tristan Thompson. And the thing is, um, so they had uh, a great season from Al Horford, a great season from uh, Paul Millsap. Uh, Damari Carroll had a very good season for them that Corver season also. shot the lights out that year too. Right. And like they had this offense that, um, you know, Horford was taking a lot of shots, but that was in the process of getting those hammer plays for, uh, for Corver where they would just, you know, spring him open all over the place. Um, a lot like what Cleveland does with him now. Um, and it just stopped working. Uh, not because, you know, everyone stopped shooting well. Like, I mean, Millsap has had a miserable season or not season series against the Cavs. But uh, so Damari Carroll, who had a very good season for them, just had a bad one against the Cavs. And you, it's this thing where if you're relying on, you know, kind of more marginal players to perform at the at peak levels as they have all season. Well, in a short series like that's not always going to happen. And so maybe with, you know, such a deep bench, which with so, so many options, if like, you know, it's not clicking for one guy, maybe they can you know bring in another. But to me, it is uh, it's more fraught. If like all that production is coming from the bench and you're expecting them to perform at, you know, the highest levels, the same high levels when they're in the conference finals against like LeBron and the Cavs 
we assume. Yeah, and so do you guys think that they will end up shrinking the bench like most teams end up doing in the playoffs? Or will they kind of break out a new paradigm of just saying, look, we're, we're, this is what got us here. We're going to rely on these guys roughly as much as we did during the regular season and see if the depth can and, and the fresh legs can kind of give us an edge against a team that might be more talented uh, or, or has a better track record against us in the past. I mean, I, I think it, it totally depends on whether, again, the trajectory of their playoff run. If they make the playoffs and they are kind of bulldozing teams until they play against the Cavs, presumably, then they won't change anything. Basically, they could say – and it's funny because every team does that. I remember – I still remember really vividly the Warriors losing – was it game one or game two of the finals one year? Uh, and you remember that year that, uh, like Kyle was just referencing, that – Irving and Love were both out, and I think Ethan Strauss at one point when the Cavs took a 2-1 lead in that series, uh, or maybe it was even just 1-1, and Ethan Strauss asked something to the effect of, like, you know, Steve Kerr, are you going to change the lineup? And it was a year they just won 67 games, and Steve Kerr laughed at him, and then they lost the next game, and then, lo and behold, all of a sudden you see Andre Iguodala in the starting lineup. It really doesn't take much struggle to kind of change your strategy because you don't have enough time in a playoff series to really get things fixed, and you're not willing to trust guys that haven't been on that stage before, particularly guys that are first or second year that are young, that you know that the stage might be too big for them the first time around. And so I totally agree with Kyle that I don't fully trust that they'll stay with that. I don't fully trust that DeRozan is a totally, totally changed player from what we've seen forever uh, as far as if they start to struggle and if his teammates aren't knocking down shots that he's going to stop moving the ball the way he has this year. I just think that that's kind of the way people are wired, and I think coaches are guilty of that, and I think normally star players, unless you've seen it for years at a time where they've kind of over done a complete overhaul, that I think that we're more likely to see what we've seen in the past if the, if the going gets tough. Right, and it's not even like on a game-by-game game thing. It can be situation-by-situation. Situation. So let's say um, they go back to uh, – they leave Toronto uh, tied 1-1, go into Cleveland, and all of a sudden it's you know the first two minutes of the second quarter and a you know three-point lead turns into a five, six, seven-point deficit. Like, are we going to stay on the rotation that has De- DeMar DeRozan playing like 32, 33, 34 minutes? Like, I kind of feel like we're not. <laughs> I feel like in that kind of game three, like whatever, like, no, 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 let's get the starters back in. Let's get DeMar back in. Um, and I, th- I feel like that's something that we're just going to have to see uh, before we think like, oh, yeah, they're just going to stick with the bench because, you know, it's what got them here. Uh, you know, in like a short series, like those decisions are much, much harder to stick by, especially when, like, as we know, like across the league, like star players just play more in the in the playoffs. They just do. Yeah, we talk about small sample size a lot on this show and the playoffs are by definition a small sample size. And so you can't really kind of wait around and, and gather as much data as you would like before making a decision like that. Now, I should say our playoff prediction model, uh, our Carmelo model here at 538 gives the Raptors a 38 percent chance of winning the East, which makes them a pretty sizable favorite over the Cavs, who are at 20 percent, the Sixers, who are at 17 percent and the Celtics, who are at 16 percent. And we also have them at 
at 11% to win it all. By comparison, Vegas has an implied probability of about 31% for Toronto to win the East, which is second behind the Cavs at 34%, and then gives the Raptors a 7% chance to win the title, which is fourth best behind the Warriors, Rockets, and Cavs. So uh, which which of those two do you buy more uh, into? Do you, do you think that the Raptors are officially the Eastern Conference favorites, or would you kind of hedge more like the markets seem to be kind of leaning toward the Cavs, even though the Cavs haven't really given us that much of a reason to, aside from maybe games like uh, Tuesday night, where they actually did beat the Raptors head-to-head, and they've actually won two straight over Toronto. I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to look at Toronto and say that's the team I'm going with right now um, for a few reasons. Uh, I'm not making much of last night. Uh, Kyle Lowry was at the national championship game earlier in the week uh, because he went to Villanova and then flew back for the game that they had yesterday um, in Cleveland and played horribly and, you know, was answering questions about that. I don't really care that he wasn't, uh, you know, in Cleveland the night before, what, whatever. But the thing that I take more seriously is that um, they're, they're just bad lineups that they have and bad options that they have as far as trying to guard Cleveland at times. When Cleveland wants to go to a five-out lineup, what is Valanciunas doing? You know, I, I think – uh, you watch teams that kind of bomb threes against Toronto. Uh, they normally try to hide Valanciunas on somebody else. And so I think, for instance, when they played the Rockets and they actually managed to win that game and break the, the Rockets winning streak uh, a few weeks back, they were trying to hide Valanciunas on PJ Tucker, who I actually look at now and think that, man, if they could have found a way to keep both him and Ibaka, it would have been really valuable for this Toronto team because I don't really think that they have a whole lot of great options to throw at LeBron. And that was kind of a similar thing when you look back to that Atlanta team you guys referenced, that you had Damari Carroll, um, and you know, you, you had a couple guys, but you didn't you didn't have a full slate of guys. And that's kind of the difference between the Warriors and and a team like the Raptors is just that you've got maybe one or two guys, one of whom is a is a rookie with Ananobi, um, and you've got Siaka maybe, you've got Norm Powell maybe but they're not great options, and those are guys off your bench, which we just discussed. You might not want to go as deep with that as you have in the regular season. But can you think of a rookie that was prepared to guard somebody like LeBron? That's a that's a really tough ask, and I, I just don't – I tend to think that that's not quite enough to really get the job done for me to pick the Raptors head-to-head and say that they're – title odds should be better than the Cavs. Yeah, for me, it's the opposite with the the Cavs, where it's just like they obviously are going to shorten the rotation. They obviously are going to just hammer on what they see as working from series to series, from game to game. And yeah, like when they go five out, what are the Raptors going to do with uh, Valanciunas out there? When they go four out and they have Nance in there, kind of what they did against the, the Hawks that season, where Tristan Thompson was kind of a different player than we see him right now. Uh, that's kind of the player that Larry Nance Jr. is uh, at this point. And, like, what answer do they have for that? And so, like, these are going to be questions that, you know, the Cavs are going to a- ask and continue to ask until, like, an answer comes up. And so I just feel like I got to see it. I got to see it. So, so yeah, I would hedge toward the Vegas thing, which which doesn't have the Cavs as a big favorite. They they have a, by a few a few points up. But I would guess in if I were to sit down and, like, actually, you know, give my you know my values and my bayesian whatever I'd, I'd guess they're pretty close to a push and like my judgment might put the Cavs ahead by a few points yeah that's a great point about the shortening of the rotation for the Cavs actually just means playing fewer outright bad players whereas for the Raptors if you do shorten the rotation you're actually taking away minutes from players who have played well so it's sort of 
another thing. I, I do feel like in some ways we are looking for reasons and we're kind of nitpicking Toronto because we have seen them not be able to do it in the playoffs before. And so, you know, I saw a stat on SportsCenter this morning about the Raptors. They have a big split uh, between their record against uh, sub-500 teams and, and winning teams. They're 33-2 and against sub-500 teams and only 22-20 and against opponents better than 500, which is the fourth biggest split in the league. I don't know how much you want to put stock in things like that because I do feel like in some ways people are looking for reasons to discount them. But at the same time, you know, it, it is something like you said, Kyle, where it's sort of a show me type of thing. Now, as the number one seed, Toronto's path would probably go through the Bucks, Heat, or Wizards in round one. Who would you rather face if you were Toronto and you had your pick of those teams? Probably not the Bucks, right? With Giannis, that might be an interesting series. I think we talked about that last week, even, right, Chris? Yeah, give me Miami if, if I'm Toronto right now. I mean, they they obviously have a good defense as well, and I. I mean, I'm a little worried about Toronto playing against really good defenses because of what we just said and their offense and the fact that, at least in years past, which, you know, we have to get away a little bit from just kind of knocking them for what they've done in the past, but their offense had stagnated in the past in the playoffs. And because it was so, so much of a two man game between Lowry and DeRozan, that if they're off, that it can really throw the whole team off and it kind of relies on them to win in other ways or to kind of pull a game out at the very end. Um, but I, I still would prefer that Miami matchup if I'm them just because, look, I really, really don't want to play Milwaukee in the first round. I mean, they've had that series before and really, really struggled to win it. Uh, and that was a much younger version of Giannis, a younger version of the Bucks. Um, you know, I just, I just tend to think that Giannis would be the best player in that series by far. And I just tend to think that that is not the way you want to go. I, I even think that Wall kind of fits that criteria too. If he's totally healthy and he's back and, and on track again and Beal, you can start making arguments that they have at least the best player in the series, if not two of the three best players in the series. Um, although I think Lowry is probably underrated as a guard in the NBA, but I, I just think that the less star power you're up against, um, and especially with the heat and kind of feuding with the star that they do have, other than Dragic, I mean, Whiteside, obviously. Um, I just think it would be good timing to kind of play a team like that. Spolstra is a very, very good coach, um, but I tend to think that talent overrides the, the differential and, you know, the gap between one coach to the other uh, from series to series. So I would I would rather play Miami if I'm Toronto. I go the other way. So I would rather play uh, Washington. Well, let, let's see how these next uh, few games play out. Let's see how the first sure. whatever play out, because uh, Wall has not looked great since he's come back, and that plays a big part. I think he's only played two games since he had that big layoff. Um, that's obviously going to take some time. And, like, the the question – since basically three, he'd missed three, four games, and like he missed more than that eventually. Uh, but the question early on was, well, is he going to adjust to the the team, or is the team going to have to adjust to him? And it seems like neither has happened just yet. It's only been a few games, but that's a big deal. But on the other side, with Miami, yeah, I kind of don't trust this team playing against uh, like a very good defense, and that is a very good defense with Josh Richardson is. Uh, we haven't talked much about like defend individual defenders, like you know, on a league level for a while. Uh, we did a story early in the season, and Josh Richardson was on the list of. Well, this is uh, new uh, that he is uh, one of like by by all the metrics and just the eye test, obviously uh, one of the best, best, best uh, defenders in the league. 
And the question was, well, is this going to keep up all season? It has. Uh, if you look at the, the quantified shot quality, whatever, he's giving up a 49.2 average uh, expected field goal uh, uh, what rate. And he's holding opponents to like 48 effective field goal. Both of those are exceptional and he's defending a ton of shots. Uh, they have other like obviously good defenders on the team and I'd prefer to stay away from a team like that if we were, um, uh, you know, just had our choice. Yeah, Richardson, we someone we probably haven't mentioned on the podcast all year. We haven't talked much about the Heat th- this season either. He, you talk to enough people around that team. I was down there earlier in the season, and you talk to people that you know. You read the stuff that's been written about them. A lot of people don't think it would be a stretch to call Richardson the best player on that team. Period. If you just kind of threw out what they're being paid, and you know, not necessarily looking at what all they've been asked to do. Um, because he's obviously not asked to really carry the scoring burden for them at all. But he just in terms of just how reliable he is and just going out and doing his job, that he might be the best player, on that, very quietly the best player on that team. Definitely the best value, but maybe the best player. Right. And so it, with that on the one side of the ball and the, on the other side, the no account Wizards, who like we have a bunch of the same questions about them that we do about the Raptors. Um, but even more so. But more so. Yeah. Um, and they have like, more injury concerns. They have, you know, lineup questions with Wall coming back. Give me that. Give 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 me that instead of uh, whatever hell the Spolster is going to throw at you. Yeah. And in, in kind of a weird twist, the fact that Cleveland is playing so well and has played themselves up into the three seed slot, at least as of when we were taping the show, they've won nine of their last 10 games. That puts them on the other pod or whatever you want to call it, the other side of the Eastern Conference bracket from Toronto's path. So Toronto would probably go through, you know, if they go through one of the teams that we were just talking about and take care of that, they're going to have either Philly or Indiana, each of whom have their own flaws and, and Toronto would be certainly favored against in the second round. So that potential rematch against Cleveland might not happen until the Eastern Conference Finals. And man, would that be a great story uh, to see the Raptors try to get their revenge on Cleveland for eliminating them in each of the past two seasons. But that will all wait for the playoffs. So let's leave the Raptors there for now. We're going to close out the episode with a segment we like to call Significant Digits. But first, let's hear a word from our other sponsor. Every coach knows that finding great talent is the key to building a great team, but it can sometimes be challenging to find the right people. ZipRecruiter knows that there's a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications that you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all size trust ZipRecruiters for their hiring needs. And right now, listeners to the lab can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash the lab. That's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash the lab. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, now's the time of the show for Significant Digits, that moment when we bring you an interesting number from around the league that caught our eye during the week. This week's Sig Dig is brought to us by Kyle. Kyle, what is our number of the week? Uh, so our number of the week is eighth, I guess. I, I, don't, I don't have a specific number. I have, a, I have an, an it could idea, be eight. It could I guess. Be eight. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, let's go with eight. So Basketball Reference last, uh, last week tweeted out uh, this tweet that said, 
Uh, Victor Oladipo is the eighth player in the last decade to have a 30-plus percent usage rate. They use usage percent, but they said rate here, but it's percent. Uh, and a 57-plus true shooting uh, at age 25 or under. The other seven are LeBron, KD, Harden, Kawhi, Kyrie, AD, and Giannis. And so when I first saw this, I was like, okay, so something is going on there where, like, I, like either this is just like a true, you know, hard body fact, or, uh, you know, this is one of those things where you change the angle of the light a little bit, and it's going to shift of like, oh, still very impressive, but, you know, maybe not like quite that impressive. Yeah, you set the thresholds uh, at a certain way in which like, one guy sneaks in, and it's the guy that right. doesn't seem like he belongs. But then we go back and look, and so I changed it to, uh, if we go back for... Any player in the first five years of his uh, career, so not twenty age twenty five, because you know what about oh you know back in the day when you know players came in older. Okay, sure. Uh, we started in nineteen forty six. You know, it's a better than the last decade. Uh, we sh- kept the usage percent, but um, because so many of the older generation stars weren't as efficient, because you know the the game the parameters of the game were just different. We we lost true shooting, and we just went with win shares eight or bu- eight or above. Because this year Victor Oladipo has you know racked up eight win shares, but we kept the usage at thirty because you you can get a lot of win shares without you know ha- actually having to use the ball. And it turns out that's even more impressive. <laughs> uh, so Oladipo is still here. Uh, but Giannis is now still on the list. AD is still on the list. Lillard, Westbrook, Durant, Derrick Rose, before obviously Derrick Rose happened to Derrick Rose. Uh, more Kevin Durant, more Russell Westbrook, LeBron, Carmelo, Wade, Gilbert Arenas, uh, Tracy McGrady, Vince Carter, Allen Iverson, Paul Pierce, Kobe Bryant, David Robinson, Shaquille O'Neal, Carl Malone, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, a lot of Michael Jordan, Dominique Wilkins, then at the end, Mark Guire and John Drew. This is just, uh, chronologically going backwards. And, no, no scrubs on that list. Like, no. and so, like this, if if this is the catch-all, then Oladipo has like reached this point where, oh, so like we have to take notice because kind of like remember a few weeks ago we talked about the Rockets and how after twenty or so games we should have known that the Rockets were going to be an all-time team because teams don't just fluke into playing at like a net rating of like eight, nine, ten. Uh, kind of the same thing here. A player just doesn't fluke in who's this young, doesn't by accident have an all-time season like this, a season at this level uh, with these parameters set. And so maybe this is just uh, two examples of, you know, uh, very narrow parameters that like Oladipo slips through. But I feel like with like the two of them kind of acting at odds with each other, this says we should expect Oladipo to play at this level for a while. And this seems to imply that Indiana now has basically the most coveted thing in basketball, which is sort of a true superstar player. The thing that teams will throw away seasons upon seasons upon seasons just to have a lottery ticket at getting. And they got him in exchange for a guy who's probably going to leave after this season anyway. Or at the at worst, they replaced one star with another one who's cheaper and under contract for longer. Paul George. Paul also, George being the comparison. Yeah. Paul George also doesn't appear on either. Of Not these on lists. the list. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, that that's to me, and I, I just wrote uh, a longer piece about Indiana uh, the week before last and didn't really focus on Oladipo, mentioned him obviously, but downplayed how significant he's been. I mean, this is really their franchise at this point. I think they have lost every single game he hasn't played in this year. I think they're 0-6. Uh, definitely one of the biggest gaps between net rating when he's on the court versus when he's off. And so it's clear how much he matters to this team. Um, I, I also think it's interesting. They've pretty much held their own with Cleveland. I think they've gone three and one against Cleveland this year. They've won at least a game or two against Boston. They've won a game against Toronto. And so it, it, it begs the question of, could they do this in the playoffs? And I think that 
Uh, aside from the fact that it's Indiana, that people outside of Indiana don't watch them, they have really good TV ratings and double-digit increases in terms of how many people in-state have watched them this year on their own television network. But outside of that, they're not on TV much because nobody expected them to do this. They're the biggest surprise in the NBA. Um, what's interesting is that they, you know, Nate McMillan is going to get a lot of uh, Coach of the Year votes, but they play a style where they kind of are gorging on these mid-range jump shots that teams readily give you. And so I do kind of wonder whether that will work in the playoffs. I do kind of wonder what will happen when teams decide to try to force the ball out of Oladipo's hands, where there have been several times now the last few weeks where they've tried to trap him or tried to kind of double-team him, and Indiana doesn't generally handle it very well because Oladipo is not a great passer. Uh, he obviously started his career as a point guard and, uh, you know, kind of learned some, some of the ropes at that point and just how to get rid of the ball and where to pass it. But this is not a very great passing team. It's a pretty good shooting team, even though we don't think of them that way. Um, but it's a team that has a guy or two that could really develop into something more. So they're interesting to keep an eye on because obviously they're not going to get a, a, a coveted draft pick at this point with how good they are. But they could still watch guys develop into greater roles than what they have. I totally agree. And one of the the things, like obviously once the teams try to force the ball out of Oladipo's hands, can the rest of the team do it? Uh, one of the things that kind of protects from that, though, is Oladipo shoots th- so many pull-ups. He shoots over eight pull-ups a game. He shoots about three uh, pull-up threes a game. Shoots in the mid-30s on that, which historically is very good. Right now, it's just, you know, uh, fine. Uh, yeah, but with sh- like in the Lillard era and the Steph Curry era, but still, yeah. It's it's but it's okay. And then on the twos, he's shooting near fifty percent, which is like Chris Paul levels. So like you can for try to force the ball out of his hands, but if he's that effective on these pull up shots, so not just the mid range shots, but like he just says, Okay, you're going to hound me with the ball, like n- not let me get to the rim. Uh what if I just rise up and shoot this three and he like he does the Russ mean mug now and like everything else. <laughs> uh you know, flexes at the camera. Sure. Uh, but if he, if he can just rise up and get a pretty good shot, uh, even when you are trying to force the ball away from him, like that changes the, the way that you have to defend the team also. And that's part of the story that you mentioned, Chris. That was a great story where basically your premise was the Pacers are the anti-rockets that they sort of have gone against the, the trend of, of efficient shot selection, opting for these mid-range shots. But I think the Rockets are also an interesting comparison too because they were able to get Harden in a trade that looks pretty one-sided going uh, you know, when we look at it with the benefit of history now, and maybe this Oladipo one, based on your research, Kyle, ends up being sort of their equivalent of that. Now, you know, Houston was able, once they got their superstar, to build a system and build a supporting cast around Harden. And we talked about it uh, on the show recently that everything has kind of come together for them, uh, especially this season. Maybe the counterexample to that is Giannis and the Bucks, where you, you can get the superstar and that is sort of the first step and that's maybe the hardest step. But then filling out the parts around it and filling out the system around it and, and being able to build into a team around the superstar is also a necessary step that I think some of these you know tanking mentalities have sort of taken it for granted over the years that well if we could only get a superstar then that will fix everything for us and everything will fall into place well you know that's the first step and then everything else doesn't always fall into place and and it'll be interesting to watch if Indiana with Oladipo if he does prove to be a superstar worthy of the conversation and the list that you mentioned Kyle that you know what they can do around that and and be able to build that into maybe a contending team for the championship down the line. Yeah, I mean they're going to need really I think Miles Turner to be a 
a team that is in the conversation for a top three seed year in, year out. They're, they're probably going to need somebody like Miles Turner to make the same sort of jump at some point that Oladipo made. Um, and the irony is that Oladipo made the jump and kind of did it, I wouldn't even say under the radar. I mean, he, he made it totally this year, um, was on at least one team, you know, in Orlando that still has not found that guy, you know, maybe Aaron Gordon to some extent, but not fully. And then Oklahoma City, a team that, lost a superstar, was dying to find another one, and traded Oladipo to get who they thought that person was. And Oladipo has, you know, fundamentally outplayed him. Statistically, definitely uh, outplayed Paul George this season. And so it's been strange in that sense that he's made that kind of jump and he did it all at once. But, yeah, they're going to need somebody else. And I think if they were to do that, they would be kind of a slightly different version of what we see with Philly. Um, A little bit older, one, and, and two, obviously, uh, Oladipo being a two guard as opposed to Simmons being a point guard, but you'd have both a big that can kind of step out and take threes and is a good rim protector and has different skills. And then you'd have Oladipo obviously to kind of do the majority of the scoring for you. But I think there's still a, a ways away from that. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how they do it because the team does rely on so many shots. They do take those mid range shots. Kyle did raise the point that they take a lot of contested shots. But they also get way more wide open shots from mid-range than any team and more open shots, meaning four to six feet with nobody standing around them. They're pulling the trigger really early in the shot clock, which to me is more of a strategy really than something that they're drawing up. And that's probably not going to be there in the playoffs. So I'm interested to see how how the game changes for them on offense when teams actually pressure them and decide that they're going to really heavily contest what they're doing because a lot of it has been instinctual and they're just saying, oh, I'm wide open, let me take the shot. Yeah, I mean, they do have Bogdanovich, uh, who is, you know, shooting very, very well from, you know, all over the courts. They, they, they have options if they need to, you know, tighten it up. Uh, if they're going to be able to do that while playing Lance Stevenson, significant minutes is a big question. Uh, well, by the way, how is Lance only 27 years old? I'm looking at this team right now. How is Thad Young only 29? That's crazy. Yeah, they, they've both been around forever. Uh, Born Ready uh, has one of the worst um, on-off differentials in the league. Uh, he is at like minus nine per, per 100 possessions, like overall, like offense, defense. Uh, uh, but, you know, they, they love him there. Uh, I mean, everyone, like, like he's an exciting player to watch, but uh, it hasn't uh, been great. So, yeah, they have obvious questions up and down the lineup, but uh, Depot is just playing really really well so i mean maybe that carries them the way that you know paul george could carry a series uh maybe depot can carry a series or two okay so let's leave the pacers there and close up this week's show next week we will be doing two podcasts to help you prepare for the playoffs so stay tuned for that our podcast producers are tony chow and katie ferguson as always our podcast commissioners chad matlin please keep sending us your feedback at podcast at 538.com Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there. Whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.